We're all in this together. If you follow the climate conversation, you've probably heard this phrase at least once. These five words carry a lot of weight. They speak to an essential truth about the climate crisis, that its impacts are global and they transgress geopolitical boundaries. But there's another truth too, one that can be erased by those words. We didn't all contribute to climate change equally. There's a clear frontrunner here, and you've probably already guessed who it is. The United States of America. According to the World Resources Institute, we contributed over a quarter of all the carbon dioxide that was emitted between 1850 and 2011. And no other country came even close. While China has recently surpassed the US in terms of annual emissions, we're currently down to about 15% of the total each year. We can definitively say that the US has played a disproportionate role in warming the planet over the last century. We're also the richest country in the world, and the one with the largest economy. Which means, compared to countries in the global south, we simply have more resources to deal with the impacts of climate change, like heat waves, food shortages, coastal erosion, or damaging storms. And that means that the country that contributed the most to climate change is not going to bear the brunt of its impacts. But get this, we also have the largest wealth gap in the world, and most of that wealth is held by white people, 86% of it to be exact. So once again, even within the US, those who are contributing the least to climate change will feel a disproportionate amount of its impacts. Think about what that means for just a moment. We built the largest economy in the world with the jumbo-sized carbon footprint that goes along with it. And it's an economy that's fundamentally based on extraction of coal, oil, and gas, and of trees, metal, and water, yes, also of human beings. We're a country founded on stolen land, built by stolen people. And that history has left indelible imprints on the present. And that's why I'm talking about racism in a season devoted to climate data. Consider these facts. Air pollution is concentrated in communities of color, where factories and power plants are more likely to be located. A 2019 study found that Black and Hispanic communities are exposed to far more air pollution than they produce, and white Americans experience better air quality than the national average, even though we produce the majority of pollution. Black, brown, and indigenous peoples are three times more likely to die from asthma and other respiratory illnesses linked to air pollution. Neighborhoods of color are more likely to have more pavement and fewer trees, which contributes to higher than average temperatures, which in turn puts them at higher risk of illness and death linked to heat waves. And to top it all off, people living in those communities are twice as likely to be uninsured as white people, which means that not only are they getting sicker, they don't have access to the healthcare they need. Here's another example. Around 80% of people of color in the US live in coastal regions, especially in the South, where we also see the greatest risk of sea level rise in the country. Take New Orleans, which is 62% black and two feet below sea level. When Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, almost a third of its black residents didn't own a car, which meant they couldn't evacuate. We'll never know exactly how many people died in the storm, and the deaths seem to have largely fallen along demographic lines when it comes to race. But in the aftermath of the storm, rebuilt neighborhoods became gentrified, pushing people out of their homes or even out of the city entirely. While white neighborhoods have largely rebuilt over the last 15 years, there's been a net decline in New Orleans' black population. 
These examples illustrate a phenomenon known as environmental racism, a term coined in 1982 by Benjamin Chavez. He defined the term as racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulation and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of the ecology movements. I was two years old when he wrote that. And almost 40 years later, very little has changed. When climate activists talk about how communities of color bear the disproportionate impact of climate change, sometimes people get annoyed. Why are you trying to divide us when climate change unites us? Why bring up social justice at all? Just stick to the science. I tell them to look at the data. We know that climate change disproportionately impacts communities of color for the same reasons we know about what's happening to coral reefs, ice caps, and forest fires. Research. Environmental justice scholars research the differential impacts of climate change and pollution on marginalized communities. This is a respected field of scholarship. But understanding the impacts of living near an oil refinery or a concrete plant requires a different approach than monitoring butterfly populations or measuring sea level from satellites. It's one that puts people front and center and recognizes them as authorities, experts on their own lived experiences. It also means changing the ways that science itself has been an extractive process, where white experts parachute into marginalized communities and convert pain into products, publications that never get into the hands of policymakers. So the cycle continues, and white scientists prosper, and it's no surprise that so many of the solutions we propose to climate change run the risk of repeating the same mistakes that got us here in the first place. Have you ever looked up where the lithium and cobalt needed for electric vehicle batteries actually comes from? And how do we make sure that black and brown neighborhoods have the same access to green energy development that white neighborhoods do? Welcome to Warm Regards. I'm Jacqueline Gill. And I'm Ramesh Longani. For this episode, we are exploring how an understanding of environmental justice can help us avoid repeating the harms of centuries of environmental exploitation as we grapple not only with the impacts of climate change, but also the potential impacts of proposed solutions to this global challenge, from the Green New Deal to carbon capture. We'll talk about how environmental justice research explores the differential impacts of climate change and pollution on marginalized communities and how, if we want to do something about that, we're going to need a new approach to science that is collaborative and community-driven. Then, we talk about how we can avoid legacies of colonialism by placing environmental justice at the center of climate policies as we implement climate solutions. Our first guest is Dr. Sakobi Wilson, an associate professor at the University of Maryland College Park School of Public Health, where he directs the Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health Laboratory. He also serves on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council of the EPA and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences Board on Environmental Studies and Toxicology. As an environmental health scientist, Dr. Wilson partners with community-based organizations to study and address environmental justice and health issues and to translate research to action. Dr. Wilson, often when people talk about environmental research, they're thinking about things like monitoring the impacts of pollution on streams or climate change impacts on frog populations or sea ice. But your work takes a different focus, not only in terms of your focus on marginalized human communities, but your entire approach to science. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why the focus on environmental justice is so important? 
Yeah, no, thank you for that question. Thank you for having me. I think it's really important to understand how science can be used for good and for evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and honestly, I believe when it when you look at science as a tool, science is not a end, it's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And when you look at issues of environmental health, environmental justice, environmental racism, and, and, and climate justice, we really have to think about science in those terms more often than, than we do. As a researcher, a lot of work that I do is really engagement in application science. And so if Hmm. you're going to solve problems of environmental justice, you're going to solve problems of climate justice, uh, injustice, you really have to engage frontline and fenceline community members in that science. You have to uplift community and cultural knowledge systems. You have to really leverage and make sure this work is community-driven because those Individuals who live on the front line of fence line are, are, are the contextual experts. They're, in many ways, they're the true subject matter experts. In Bayesian terms, those individuals are what have what we call specificatory knowledge. Hmm. Scientists have general knowledge. They're not living in a community, a front line, fence line community. A community may have multiple power plants, a mm-hmm. community dealing with multiple fracking sites, or a community where there's multiple refineries, a community that's dealing with pipelines. Uh, the folks who live there understand exposure patterns, upwind, downwind patterns. They know when, you know, at certain times of the day, certain times of the night, that there's a plume of gas coming from a facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know a certain odor, what that odor means for that child with asthma. That's contextual right. knowledge. That's specificatory knowledge. And so in the work that I do, I, I uplift that. I, I really focus on doing science that's empowering. I mean, I talk about liberation science and empowerment science. I, I talk about, you know, science that needs to be done, particularly in, a, in the context of environmental issues, whether it be environmental racism or, or, or climate change. Science that focuses on those who are most socially vulnerable, economically vulnerable, geographically vulnerable. Thinking about those who are the most vulnerable, you mentioned environmental racism, which forms the foundation of much of your work. And for those who might not be familiar with this field, can you tell us about the connections between racism and the environment here in the U.S.? Our history of racism in this country and environmental racism is, is, is a one form of the institutional racism that's been a plague of the U.S. since its founding. Mm-hmm. You can't have America without racism and white supremacy because we have had white supremacy since the founding of the country. So if you're going to fight against racism, you can think about environmental racism, how some communities are targeted for these locally wanted uses, right? What we call Lulus. So from incinerators, to power plants, to landfills, refineries, pipelines. A lot of times the folks who are disproportionately burdened, they're disproportionately burdened because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't see the number of incinerators that we currently see in communities of color in white communities. You wouldn't see the number of power plants we see in communities of color in, in white communities. Look at the work of the NWCP. Uh, they had two reports, Fumes Across the Fence Line, and another report called Cold-Blooded. And really about how the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas extraction, whether it be traditional or fracking, how that industry disproportionately impacts communities of color. You look at toxic waste and race, 1987 and 2007, uh, reports that were commissioned by United Church of Christ, icons of the EJ movement, like Charles Lee and Bernice Miller Travis, found that race was a significant predictor of the location of hazardous waste sites. So racism drives where we place these facilities. Think about how we permit facilities. 
Right. And we permit facilities to pollute, right? We permit facilities to emit poison into the air, water, and soil. Right. In my opinion, that state-sanctioned poison of communities, and that's a state-sanctioned form of violence against communities of color. So you already have violence in communities of color when it comes to police brutality. You already have violence in communities of color when you see people like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor murdered. You see trans folks of color who get murdered. You see young people of color are being accosted just because of color skin. The dehumanization of individuals, uh, dehumanization of children of color when it comes to punishment in schools. You've seen young kids who've been arrested, right? Five or six-year-old kids been arrested. The hands are too small for the handcuffs. The handcuffs fall off. You see this trauma and this violence in black communities. The over uh, sentencing when it comes to certain offenses. You can connect that type of violence to the violence of environmental racism, the trauma of environmental racism in communities. So how can science, and this is deep, y'all, how mm-hmm. can science impact that? Well, science can first not contribute to more violence, mm-hmm. not contribute to more trauma. And as you know, in the history of this country, when it comes to science, we've actually done a lot of violence to Black communities too. Right. The racial and biological exploitation of Black bodies. You look at the father gynecology worked on enslaved women, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the sterilization of of black women and other women of color. You can go on and on, whether it be Tuskegee, as everyone talks Mm -hmm. about, at Alex with the HeLa cells, and look at how folks of color, black folks have been exploited by science. And unfortunately, a lot of science today is extractive. There's helicopter science, colonial science, and there's a lot of science that I call pain pimping science. We're studying what's wrong with folks instead of what's right with folks. We're doing mm-hmm. science empowering people to overcome. We're doing science that only focuses on the negative and doesn't focus on the positive what we see in communities, right? And mm-hmm. so it's important in the science that I do that is about liberation, that is about empowerment, that is science that's for social justice. I do science for the people. That's science that focuses on social change. I really like the way you approach the science that you do from an empowerment perspective rather than an extractive perspective. To that end, what kinds of data are you collecting and working with? And how does that data translate into action and policy changes? I do a lot of work on air quality. So one of the, one of the big issues when you think about environmental justice, environmental racism, air quality is the fact that you have a lot of these pollution in many facilities, you know, communities of color both mobile and stationary sources. So think about uh, the National Highway Defense Act, urban renewal. Mm-hmm. A lot of highways and byways were both through black and brown communities. So what does that lead to? That leads to a lot of mobile pollution, right, in those communities. So when you burn mm-hmm. fossil fuels, what do you get? You get particulate matter. You get polycyclic amount of hydrocarbons, right? You're going to get NO2, SO2. You know, you're going to get so uh, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide. So think about, you know, you know, acid rain, you know, smog, right? Uh, and then, of course, VOCs as well, volatile compounds. And VOCs plus sunlight, you know, uh, PM, NO2, what do they produce? Produces ozone, ground level ozone. Mm-hmm. That's the mobile source pollution. Then you think about stationary source pollution, you have, you know, incinerators, you know, have power plants. And let me go back. I'm not, I want to forget the industrial truck traffic. They're burning diesel. Right. So exhaust, diesel particulates. Diesel uh, has 40 different cancer causing contaminants. And short term exposure to diesel exhaust can mess with your concentration, your coordination, your focus. So think about children riding school buses or, or kids walking by schools or, or school buses island that burn diesel, right? But the issue is 
there's not enough monitors to monitor these pollution levels in these communities overburdened by mobile and industrial sources of air pollution. And what happens is you may have a monitor that's giving you a background reading, but then there's a new facility that's going to be permitted right by your house. The monitor is 20 miles away from your house. Right. They use that data in the permitting process. That's actually bad science. And it's environmental health, we call it exposure misclassification. It could be 10 micrograms per meter cube 20 miles away. You don't know what the levels are at the neighborhood level. So it, we lack granularity in, in mm-hmm. monitoring. So what I'm doing is actually helping communities build hyperlocal air quality monitor networks. So they can actually get basically resolved granular data at the neighborhood level that can be used to inform policy. We've done some air quality monitoring work in Charleston, South Carolina, specifically North Charleston with the low country lines for model communities. That data has been useful in that community shutting down the, uh, the Charleston County incinerator. Hmm. Also been used in zoning changes. We're doing monitoring work in Uniontown, Alabama. This is a community that's near Selma, Alabama, that's dealing with issues of uh, uh, not having publicly regulated sewer and water infrastructure. They have a catfish factory. They have a lot of diesel truck traffic. They actually have a, a landfill that takes in, I think, waste from like 35 states. And that landfill also takes in special waste, coal ash. I think 4 million tons of coal ash. Wow. And so we're trying to get the type of data into the hands of community members. So we're using low-cost sensors that can be used to measure PM10, PM25, and PM1. You can get it uh, data through an app and visualize the data. And so that type of low-cost sensor data can be useful for education. Now, it cannot be used for uh, permitting and compliance, but what it can be used for is, hey, permitting agency, we need you to come in and do more monitoring because we think we see a signal here. I've done work, provided testimony around a concrete block plant that wanted to expand to be a concrete batching plant in Bladensburg, uh, Maryland. And we did some monitoring. And the interesting point is, there was an African-American church that was 40 feet away from this concrete facility. You know, it was there before the facility. And when we measured particular matter levels there, using some local sensors, much higher than the EPA annual standard and much higher than EPA daily standard. The pastor said it was so bad from the, the dust from the concrete facility that they couldn't do church during the week. And when they did church on wow. Sundays, they had to use a shovel to shovel the accumulated dust away from the front door. It's environmental racism. We often talk about how the impacts of climate change are not shared equally across communities. And you've done a lot of really important work that shows that these impacts aren't just the result of burning fossil fuels. They really go all the way back to extraction and processing. In other words, it's not just that we burn fossil fuels and they warm the planet or produce pollution, but it's also where the pipelines and processing plants and coal-fired power stations are located. And it's very deliberate. What have you found about these kinds of impacts on communities of color? Communities of color and low-wealth communities are impacted across the whole continuum. So whether it be extraction, right? I have colleagues, uh, Jill Johnston, who's done some work to look at uh, oil and gas wells and uh, disproportional impact on Latinx populations in California. You look at some of the work that's been done looking at fracking in Texas um, and other states, you've seen a disproportionate impact on folks of color and also low-wealth populations. You get to the pipelines, you see a dis- disproportionate impact. The studies show disproportionate impacts you get to refineries, right? The same impacts. Uh, you look at the refinery work that's been done in Richmond, uh, California, for example, or the work that's been done in, in the Gulf Coast, particularly the Houston Ship Channel. We did a study that really looked at uh, the location of 
Clean Air Act permitted facilities and other pollution emitting facilities, toxic release inventory facilities in Houston pre-Hurricane Harvey. And we found a disproportionate burden of those facilities on low-wealth populations of communities of color. So when you think about the science that I'm doing, part of that science is really understanding vulnerability. Hmm. One of the things that I was a part of a few years ago, I was part of a team that was looking at the public health impacts of fracking in Maryland. And we visited West Virginia to do some work uh, looking at uh, how hydraulic fracturing was impacting uh, folks in West Virginia. So we used a mixed methods design. We did a lot of community engagement and outreach. We did focus groups with folks uh, in Western Maryland where we have the Marcellus Shell uh, deposit. And then we went to West Virginia to uh, do some interviews of folks. And then we also did some uh, noise monitoring near compressor stations. So we're able to kind of pull that information together, uh, look at that. So like the hazards associated with, with fracking. So you have air pollution as a hazard associated with fracking. Potential earthquakes, uh, also uh, water quantity and quality issues. We also looked into uh, sort of social impacts, sort of traffic issues, impacts on healthcare infrastructure. And we basically ranked those different kind of impacts, high risk, medium, and low. And we basically used that to inform our recommendations to the state agencies about whether or not uh, we should have fracking in Maryland. And I, and I think that report that we did, so not just the hazard ranking, the hazard scoring, but also the work we did to engage folks in uh, Western Maryland with Marcellus Shell and individuals who are impacted by fracking in West Virginia, particularly those, those who are impacted by compressor stations, which are very noisy and also have a lot of volatile you know, compound emissions. So you think about benzene and what benzene can do uh, to human health, right? And so I think that report, I think it, it played a role in, in the governor uh, at the time banning fracking. Unfortunately, we banned fracking. We didn't ban frack gas. So we still have an issue with pipelines in the state of Maryland. And so that's ongoing. Are there other effects of climate change that might be more pronounced in communities of color than in other communities? You got uh, heat island issues. Why do we have heat islands? Well, we, you can look back at the history of red line in this country. Well, why is that important to this question? Well, the places that were color green had access to more municipal services, right? Uh, places of color green didn't have the concentration of impervious surfaces to absorb the heat. So you think about heat island, you have too many impervious surfaces. You have no trees, no tree canopy, right, in, in many of these communities. And then you also, a lot of these older communities don't have air conditioning. And so heat waves, as I like to say, are hell for the poor and the elderly and those who live in red line neighborhoods. And then also too many imperfect surfaces when it comes to heat waves and heat islands, it's also important for stormwater. So you got communities that are dealing with heat islands at the same time, because of climate change, you're gonna have more episodic rain and more episodic flooding, too many imperfect surfaces, no green infrastructure, nowhere for that water to go. So you have that impact. So we have to engage those communities who are dealing with those issues. We have to engage with communities who are dealing with more frequent and, and, and more dangerous hurricanes. Why is that relevant to the discussion of environmental justice? Well, you know, last year was the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. We knew that a lot of low-income folks of color lived in, you know, the areas, lower elevation, that flooded easily, right? We also know that New Orleans was a heavily segregated community with a lot of the folks of color, black folks are in poverty, okay? 
And then we didn't learn the lessons from Hurricane Katrina. We saw Hurricane Harvey. Remember the people who were escaping through that toxic soup in the, the Hurricane Katrina? Folks were escaping through a toxic soup in Hurricane Harvey. Why is that important for Houston? Houston doesn't have any zoning. So you basically have all these impervious surfaces in Houston. So you got the heat island issue. You also have the flooding issue in Houston. And remember, you have the Houston Ship Channel, which is what the largest petrochemical corridor in the world. So that's an EJ issue by itself. So it seems to be that these impacts are fundamentally the result of longstanding historical inequities, right? You look at the history of our country. After folks were enslaved, Africans were freed. When they settled after slavery, lived in communities that uh, were in floodplains and flood zones. So you fast forward to today. Because of climate change, you have a higher number of Black folks who are at risk uh, from hurricane impacts because of those settlement patterns and because of the racism associated with settlement, right? Where they were forced to live in areas at the time that were deemed less viable or less wanted by, you know, the white citizenry at the, at the time, right? And so you look at today, Hurricane Florence again, that hurricane dumped 11 trillion gallons of rain a few years ago. And the reason why it's important you have a lot of industrial hog farms that have been raised in the eastern hydrophysiologic plain, the eastern coastal plain in North Carolina, okay? And so people were, after Katrina and Harvey, were escaping through a toxic soup of chemicals, right? And maybe some human sewage. In North Carolina, they were escaping through a toxic soup of animal waste and human waste and also coal ash, okay? This is why it's important for us to, you know, take into account the historical issues, right? Historical racism, contemporary environmental racism. And what we do when it comes to climate change policy, we have to focus on equity and justice. You have folks because of hurricanes, because of heat islands, because of flooding, they're dealing with climate gentrification. They're pushed out of their communities during the event and the post event, and then they're able to come back, right? That's a big environmental justice issue in itself when people cannot come back home. A lot of folks like Katrina couldn't come back home, okay? So we have to, again, think about those who are most vulnerable, whether it be flooding, whether it be a heat island, whether it be hurricane, whether it be forest fire, whether it be drought. We have to think about them during that event. So preparedness and response. And we got to think about them during recovery and rebuild and with true resilience. Some of these communities were never, we talk about resiliency, right? They weren't resilient before the event. So what are we going to get them back to? We don't want to get them back to where they were. Because of racism and segregation, these communities were not able to reach that. They haven't been able to reach their full potential. We've been using them as dumping grounds. We've been using them as sacrifice zones. If we're going to focus on climate justice, we have to invest in these communities. That's, an, again, another equity component. When you think about recovery after a hurricane, we have to get folks back to three times or five times where they were. Because again, they've been dealing with the cumulative impact of racism and segregation in many cases over multiple decades. So if we're gonna address climate justice, we have to address these issues of, I mean, really take a human rights frame. You have the right to clean air. We should all have the right to clean water. We should all have the right to energy that's affordable, okay? We should all have the right to safe housing 
that's affordable. We should all have the right to safe food that's affordable. Yeah. If we're going to do that and make those communities resilient, it has to be investing again in, in just sustainability. Actually, a geographer by training, so I'm really fascinated by the place-based nature of your research. And you've worked at the scale of individual dump sites, factories, and you've talked a lot about this need for granular data and also partnering with the people who are the real experts because this is their lived experience. But often those individual perspectives get lost in sort of a cloud of data points. But on the other hand, that broader sort of top-down perspective picks up on general trends that can affect federal policy at the national level. So it makes me wonder, what's the right scale for us to research these kinds of impacts? Should we be doing this hyper-granular work at the neighborhood scale, or do we need to zoom out and see the big picture, or do we just need a new approach to this kind of science entirely? In a lot of my work, I do what we call community-based participatory research. So if you think about there's a community engagement continuum. So as you move from like left to right, y'all can like visualize audience, visualize outreach to kind of consultation, uh, to involvement, to participatory research, to community-driven research, right? So mm-hmm. as left to right, communication increases, trust increases, and, and engagement and involvement of the community increases, and the impact should increase too. So outreach is really one directional. You just kind of give people information. It's not really participatory. You're not really engaging mm-hmm. community. Think about involvement. You may have a community, for those of you who do, you know, scientists out there, you have a community advisory board where you get the kind of feedback loop. Community advisory board, you may have a neighborhood representative or maybe say you have five people who represent five neighborhoods. They get asked questions of you about the study. You, know, you answer those questions. They take those answers back to that community. They have more questions. We get data. So it's like that feedback loop between you, the individual representatives and those, those communities that they represent. And you have community-based specific research where communities engage in all stages of the research process. Developing the research mm-hmm. The research design, data collection, uh, in some cases, data analysis, depending on how the study is designed, and uh, dissemination data and translation to action is not enough to collect the data. And uh, community-driven is community drives the research. Oh. It's other community for the community, by the community. Yep. They, they may have their own enough capacity to do their own research. Uh, the work in North Carolina uh, with the West End Revitalization Association, they developed a framework called Community-Owned and Managed Research, COMER, C-O-M-R. And that, to me, is a model of community-driven research. And you've also written about and worked with citizen science, too, right? How does that fit in here? Citizen science is a little bit different. So y'all know citizen science from bird watching. You may have people who collect in data just for the fun of it, right? But in CBPR, community-based participatory research, or COMA, community-owned immense research, you're doing research to address a social ill, to address a public health issue to address an environmental justice issue, where in some citizen science, it just may be one to answer a research question. A lot of times, citizen science, traditionally, it may be top-down, right? Where an academic, a laboratory, a government agency, or a nonprofit group, they put out a question, and it was like crowd science, and we want y'all to answer this question for us. And so you use the power of the crowd to help answer that question. Now, that one type of citizen science that's useful when you think about data collection is mass contributory citizen science. So what you can do is you can have a bunch of folks who are wearing air quality sensors, right? 
or who have a sensor at that house across the country. And so say you have clusters, for example, in Atlanta, Georgia, or in New York, LA. So you can get place-based data and you look at exposure pattern, spatial temporal gradient in, the, in that city. But then since it's mass contributory, you can also look at patterns across the country. So in epidemiology studies, the really important thing that when you, when you think about air quality monitoring and environmental epi studies is having more monitors. So the more sensors that you have, the more data that you have, the more power that you have. So you can definitely move from a mass contributory, like a local citizen science perspective, to a mass contributory citizen science perspective. So a lot of my work, what we're trying to do is we want to have these place-based projects, right, where we're engaging communities and see what's happening locally, but also through the power of the crowd, be able to look at exposure patterns, spatial temporal gradient nationally, and then feed that into national policy. I'm on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, and NEJAC provides uh, advice on uh, EJ issues, environmental justice issues, to the Office of Environmental Justice with the EPA. And so this type of study could be really beneficial to informing what the Office of Environmental Justice does. This type of study could be very beneficial, particularly if you're doing citizen science and collecting data near a mobile source pollution for DOT, trying to change traffic patterns. And really, really what's important about this type of mass contributory citizen science is the fact that you can use it to say, hey, we need to electrify our fleet vehicles, man, our buses, our trash trucks. We can really use this type of network of sensors to say, we need to move away from fossil fuels to renewables. I really appreciate what you're saying. We have a lot of scientists that listen to our show, and I know that for them, they want to do better in pushing back against the historical inequities that exist in science and that have resulted in mistrust of science in marginalized communities. So the question to me is, how do we as a scientific community rebuild trust within those communities? I think science is we made it easy for folks to you know, be anti-science. I like to say that we're using science right now. You know, we watch science, we turn science, we drive science, we wear science, we eat science, we breathe science, we wear science. Some of that is not good science, right? I mean, science is everywhere. We have to help people connect to science better. Like with climate change, there's been a lot of doom and gloom when it comes to the end of the world when climate change. And that doom and gloom doesn't work in the communities I work in. They're already dealing with doom and gloom, right? They're already dealing with survival mode in many cases when it comes to the pollution and the hazards they're experiencing. So you have to use science in a way to, like I said, empower folks and inspire folks. And I think what's important about the erosion of trust, like, like you said and I've said, there's been a lot of racial and biological exploitation of pot folks over the years. So how do we undo that? I mean, that's, that's baggage that science has. And we have to undo that baggage. And part of it is the scientists, we have to do several things. We have to build trust with communities that have these issues. We have to do more science that's focused on action. Ernest Boyer, a Boyer's five images of science, the science of discovery, the science of teaching, the science of integration, that's uh, multidisciplinarity, the science of engagement and the science of application. And Boyd talks about doing all five dimensions of science. I tell my students and colleagues, if you're not doing all five dimensions, you're doing incomplete science. Yeah. And I cannot just do discovery science because to me, 
working in a community that has multiple power plants or ethane crackers or or has you know multiple highways and have been exposed to you know tons of uh, criteria air pollutants and hazardous air pollutants like you know you know like I said before volcanic compounds or criteria air pollutants like particulate matter, folks are already you know suffering from these being poisoned basically. So as a scientist, I like to say this: I'm not curious about anything I work on when it comes to environmental justice because it's macabre. I'm curious about being poisoned, basically. That is inhumane. Yeah. That is unethical. So when we do science that only observes, observes an issue, or science that extracts from people's experiences and doesn't give back, that's, in my opinion, bad science. And to me, partly because of the incentive structure that we have in academia, for example, publish or perish, a lot of folks focus just on discovery science because the culture of academia really focuses on discovery, focuses on inquiry. And suppose that's the most objective form of science. And unfortunately, I think that puts scientists who want to maybe do more of this community-engaged research, like community-based potential research or position where I have to choose my career over my heart in some cases, right? But for me, you know, I don't have a choice in the type of science that I do because I came from a community that had a sewer shipping plant, you know, that had a landfill, that had a major highway. My dad was a pipe fitter. So my dad actually worked at a lot of these pollution instances like coal-fired power plants, nuclear power plants, right? So my lived experiences have really driven me to be the scientist that I am, a scientist who does applied action-oriented research. I have to say, a lot of this sounds very different from what we're trained to do as scientists. There's no objective science. Whoa, what do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> if you grew up near a butterfly farm, you do research on butterflies. There's nothing wrong with that. But something informed your lens, some experience that you had drove you to that research. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a positive bias. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also, we talk about rigor. You want to do rigorous science. I told you the most rigorous science that I can. But also, doesn't need to push back on both objectivity and rigor at the same time. So who says the science is rigor? Who makes the decision on what's rigor and what's not? Part of the issue also is it's about power and control. Unfortunately, when you have science that I do, it's been deemed or described as being not objective and not rigorous. I scoff at the objectivity and I scoff at, I scoff at the rigor. Because to me, if you're doing science where you're studying a particular problem, you know, and you're not really engaging the folks that impact on the problem, how do you know you have the right questions and you have the right methods? You have the right tools, right? And so for me, when you do community-engaged research, particularly in this, in this area of environmental health, it is highly rigorous research because you're actually getting the questions are informed by the lived experience by those who are the front-line, fence-line folks. Remember I said before, they are the subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. So there are folks who like to hide behind objectivity and rigor. If you're doing science that all you, well, Jacoby, my job is to publish. No, you choose to publish only. Well, Jacoby, it's not my job to communicate the science beyond publications. Let's be real out there, fellow scientists. I'm the editor-in-chief of environmental justice. I have about 80 publications. So I'm not saying you shouldn't publish. But let's be honest. Publications are about you about putting change in your pockets about your career. Now, y'all can push back on me. You can send me questions. Publications are not about solving social problems. 
is a policymaker going to read your publication? 99% of the time, I will say no. Why is that? You have to have your elevator speech when you share your scientific results with policymakers. When you only publish, that is not really doing comprehensive scientific communication. If you want to do comprehensive scientific communication, you should be doing briefs, white papers. You should be doing infographics. You should be creating maps, right? You should be on in newspapers, on radio, and on TV. Facebook, you should be doing Instagram. You should be doing tweets, and you should be TikToking. How is your science getting to the people? How is your science getting to the policymakers? In my lab, we engage policymakers directly. We actually have a weekly work group where we have policymakers, and we've been working on bills. So our science has been integrated directly into bills that have been submitted in the state of Maryland assembly this year. So I'm really writing on my statements. I am pushing scientists to do more. Publishing is really about us. It's an insular activity for an insular crowd. If you really want to make change on these social issues I'm talking about, you have to take your science, be able to communicate the science to those policymakers directly or through a white paper, through a brief, through an executive summary, through a press release, through some type of visual. In today's society, you have to be able to use social media. And we cannot continue to say, well, it's someone else's job to take what I publish and do something with it. You're doing incomplete science. Think about your, remember talking about empowerment science? If you're able to share that science information to community members, they can also take it and use it. But you got to put it in the form that's useful to them. Same way with policymakers. You got to do your 15 second, and your 30 second elevator speech. You know, you cannot just have your, your, again, your 10, 15, 20, 25 page publication and think that's good enough. Not for the communities I work in. Maybe you're just doing discovery science, that's good enough. But if you really want to solve the problem, that's not good enough. Hey everyone, producer Justin Shell here. This week's data story comes from journalist and writer Yesenia Funes. She talks about a story she wrote last year that looked at the high rates of COVID-19 deaths in an area known as Cancer Alley, a stretch of communities between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that has both an extraordinary number of refineries and chemical plants and whose residents have extraordinarily high cancer rates. Hi there, my name is Yesenia Funes. I'm the climate editor with Atmos. It's a climate and culture magazine. Back when I was a senior reporter at Earther, I wrote about a study finding high rates of death among Black residents in parts of Cancer Alley. When I wrote the story, I was pretty intentional about ensuring that the story wasn't just one full of data and statistics. I wanted to be sure that it it showed the humans, the, the faces, the individuals and communities behind, you know, this devastation that uh, COVID-19 was having on the community. So I, I connected with Myrtle Felton. She's a 66-year-old resident over in St. James Parish. Uh, you know, she, her community is one that faces high levels of air pollution. Um, when I spoke to her about this new research and, and the finding of the, the pandemic's impact there. She expressed a lot of fear. Um, you know, she expressed how much she's being careful to protect herself and her loved ones from 
you know, this highly contagious virus. And these types of stories are important because oftentimes research and you know, new scientific findings, it's not always easy for readers to automatically know what that means, what that looks like. Um, and it's important to remind them that you know, there are people, um, real life people being impacted by this and that their experiences go beyond just a number or a piece of research. And so in my reporting, I aim to do that. And this study that I covered um, for Earther and the story that I wrote um, is, is a little attempt at making sure that we're providing human experiences and human stories um, to the science that we're sharing with our readers. If you'd like to share a data story with us, you can leave us a voicemail by calling 586-930-5286 or record yourself and email it to us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. Both my mother and father were born in India. They were born in the early 1940s while India was still a British colony. In fact, my father and his family were part of a migration event where millions of Hindus from what is now Pakistan moved south to India, and Muslims who lived in India migrated north to the newly formed state of Pakistan in 1947. Although both of my parents experienced India's independence early in their lives, in many ways they grew up under colonial social norms, one of which was primary school that was taught in English rather than Hindi. To be honest, Whenever I learned about the expanse of the British Empire in school, I always felt weird. The black and white pictures in the history books felt both foreign and familiar, simultaneously frozen in time and alive because my family in India would experience that colonial history. But I also learned about people like Gandhi, who helped liberate India from British rule. While India's story of liberation shaped my own view of colonialism as a feature of a bygone era, I also came to understand that colonialism left many lingering ghosts, both large and small. In fact, I still see these ghosts of colonialism when I visit my family in India today. Whether that ghost takes the form of a crowded Mumbai train car as part of the extensive rail system that crisscrosses India, built in the colonial era with Indian labor, to skincare products like Fair and Lovely that uphold whiteness and light-colored skin in high esteem, to more simple things like afternoon tea and biscuits, and the way my family members say the word schedule instead of schedule. While the daily tradition of afternoon tea and biscuits may seem like an entirely benign, Casper-like ghost of colonialism, it is, at its core, deeply rooted in the exploitative nature that is central to all colonialism. And while vast colonial empires like the British no longer exist, the globe is still characterized by an unequal distribution of power and economic clout. And this disproportionate power distribution has the potential to drive a new type of colonialism. A colonialism that is just as exploitative as what once existed under the British Empire. This modern day form of colonialism could be driven by the conditions of a warming planet, where rich and powerful nations, who have driven so much of the climate change that we see today, functionally subjugate other countries through resource extraction in an attempt to fix climate change. This type of colonialism has been more aptly described by our second guest today as climate colonialism. Dr. Ofemi Taiwo, a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, has written extensively about the potential colonial dynamics that could arise from trying to fix climate change, but also about how, if done right, those same solutions to address the climate crisis could be an opportunity to advance justice and equity on both a global and local scale. 
In fact, it was the mix of hope and realism in his writing that made such an impact on me when I came across a piece he wrote recently in The Conversation. This piece, How the Green New Deal Could Exploit Developing Countries, was not a prediction that colonial dynamics are guaranteed to emerge from fighting climate change, but it was, like many aspects of climate change, framed as a choice that we as humans must make to determine what type of future we want to see on this planet that we all share. Dr. Taiwo, in your piece in The Conversation, you wrote that Green New Deal policies could empower communities on both sides of U.S. borders and could expand the powers of poor nations to determine their own destinies, or they could promote climate colonialism. What did you mean by that? And for those unfamiliar, what is climate colonialism? So the first thing that I would say is that climate colonialism is really just a straightforward application of what colonialism is if you understand colonialism in a particular way. Um, So I think what people typically imagine when they think of colonialism is a guy gets off a boat carrying a flag and plants in the soil and says, this belongs to the queen now, right? I think that's kind of, you know, the background story that I know I have. I would take it that a lot of Mm -hmm. people have. And it's not like, you know, that's not wrong. That's certainly one way that colonialism has worked and could continue to work. But I think that kind of story, that kind of drama is um, maybe misleading if we're trying to think politically speaking, what is colonialism? So the way I think about colonialism is um, well summed up by a anti-colonial activist, fighter, and thinker, Amilcar Cabral. He fought uh, against Portuguese imperialism in West Africa, um, in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau. And he said that the core aspect of imperialist domination was foreign control of the means of production and culture, which turned out to be linked. You know, without jargon, what he's saying is um, the person who controls or the country who controls or the corporation who controls, whether you have the basic kind of security that you can't live without, food, energy, water, shelter, that person controls more of your life and robs you of self-determination, the ability to decide how you're going to live. If you can't decide how you're going to survive, you can't, you know, have the same kind of autonomous choice over everything else. And so all climate colonialism is, is just recognition of the fact that as climate crisis deepens, as there are more and stronger natural disasters, as resources get harder to come by for some people, that's going to shift the kinds of relationships of power and domination that decide whether or not people and the governments that represent them are able to make meaningful decisions about how they're going to live. I think that's a really powerful framework because it reminds us that colonialism isn't just something that happened in the past, right? It's an ongoing process that's still playing out today. And you've written about how climate colonialism may take different forms than what people might think when they hear colonialism. Can you talk more about that? So I think a good way to think about the concerns is 
through thinking about this other related concept. So um, this is something that people like Kwame Nkrumah, who was the political leader in Ghana and also an anti-colonial fighter, he used the term neo-colonialism, which other people have used. And the basic idea was, let's get away from thinking about the planting a flag definition of colonialism, right? If people, mm-hmm. you know, if empires leave and say, you get to have your own government now, but by the way, nationals from our countries retain the companies that own your raw materials, for example, your natural resources. We can assassinate anyone who's pushing a line that we don't like about the course of your development. If we control multinational, supranational institutions like the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, that decides um, the course of how your government meets their needs, you might have kind of the external trappings of independence. You might have your own flag, right? And not the queen's flag. Mm -hmm. You might have your own government, but there might be some important political sense in which there's something rather colonial that's still going on. And I think once we think of that, it helps us understand both what climate colonialism is and it helps us understand how specific pieces of legislation might make that position worse or better, right? So the Green New Deal might set ambitious net zero targets, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but it might um, set places like the EU and the United States um, on a course for acquiring land in the global south um, and then directing land use and land management practices in other parts of the world. That's one concrete illustration of how things could go worse. You brought up the Green New Deal and its potential pitfalls and opportunities. What do you think the Green New Deal gets right? And what do you think is the best way to turn those good ideas into realities? The basic thing that the Green New Deal gets right, and and right now, I think it's much better to think of it as an idea than, you know, a particular set of policy commitments, just because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not really there politically. Um, So the particular thing that Green New Deal gets right is that it links the set of things that we need to do with a comprehensive kind of transformative economic program. Part of the problem, I think, is a kind of piecemeal approach to climate politics. We're going to pass a tax credit here, a clean air regulation there, and hopefully at the end of 10 years of disparate legislation, um, we'll get something that amounts to change of our currently fossil fuel-based economy on a scale that is going to be atmospherically relevant, that is going to address the U.S.'s very sizable contribution to global emissions. We may end up backed into a corner where that's all we can do. And certainly, I guess that's preferable to doing nothing. But I think what's actually called for is something on the scale of the New Deal. In fact, something beyond the scale of what the New Deal was, which was an effort to pretty fundamentally renegotiate the relationship of the federal government to the economic security of people and also to the commercial world. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about moving from our current economy to um, something that will emit less and that would, in the ideal case, be justice promoting as opposed to this you know, racial capitalist system that doesn't do such a good job 
at a lot of aspects of justice. In thinking about the disproportionate impacts of climate change, is there really any way for future energy production and climate change solutions, even if they ultimately reduce carbon emissions like direct air capture, to not be colonial because those solutions require resources to be built and implemented somewhere? I definitely think that's a clear way that things could go. So you take something like direct air capture. The technology pulls carbon out of the ambient air. Sure, fine. That's a technical description of what it does. So the question about whether or not it helps colonialism then becomes a political question about what we use that technical capacity to do. It seems very likely that you could roll out direct air capture in the following way. We encourage direct air capture by something like a tax credit kind of system that thus ties direct air capture to the continued production of revenue and profit by polluting industries. That would include the fossil fuel companies. That would include airplanes and aerospace, et cetera, et cetera. So politically, the point of direct air capture on that way of rolling it out would be to keep those things going in the way that they are. The organizing feature of how we do both direct air capture and fossil fuel extraction would continue to be mm. profit rather than fueling necessary things in the world. And that would go in the way that it has over the past decades, which is in a way that exploits lots of parts of the world, including Louisiana and including indigenous communities in Canada, but also strongly targets the global south, places like Nigeria and Angola, right? So that is certainly one version of a politics that involves direct air capture. It's the version that the oil companies are betting on, and it's the version that they're likely to win unless they meet strong, organized political opposition. So you highlighted the idea that these green climate-friendly technologies might perpetuate and provide cover to those exploitative processes. Is there a better way to think about those technologies when we consider implementation? I think there's a much better way to think about those technologies. And it begins with starting out at the technical note. What is it that direct air capture in and of itself does? Well, it, it's a negative emissions technology, right? So like mm -hmm. um, afforestation, for example, like other kinds of approaches, it's a way to make the amount of pollution in the air lower tomorrow than it is today. That's obviously something we should want. Not only is it something we should want, but the story about colonialism tells us, I think, the most powerful story about why we should want it, right? It's literally undoing some of the damage that has been done. So if we thought about a rollout of mm. carbon removal, whether natural or technological, like direct air capture, where the countries that have emitted the most were committing the most research dollars to develop the technologies to the point where they could actually remove significant amounts of carbon at scale, which is um, something that is cost prohibitive in the present tense, but that research might help along in the medium term and the long term. Um, and we should certainly try to find out. If you had the EU and the United States building direct air capture facilities, um, 
participating at scale in afforestation, participating in regenerative agriculture, especially in ways that um, didn't make the global south deal disproportionately with the land use problems that arise from those kinds of questions. I think what you're looking at is a very literal description of what climate reparations would look like. Now, winning that politics involves beating the fossil fuel companies. That's not the version that they want, right? For any of that to matter, emissions would have to be dramatically lower than they are now, which means the fossil fuel companies would have to lose serious battles, would have to be legally enjoined to do some of this work rather than given tax credits and goodies for pretending to do it. And the latter is overwhelmingly the strategy that they're adopting in the present tense. They're promising to maybe think Mm -hmm. about doing carbon capture and on the strength of that promise, trying to get investors to keep giving them money and trying to get regulators not to make demands of them. And that's what we have to challenge directly. One of the proposed mechanisms for kind of leveling the playing field between countries is the Green Climate Fund. Can you talk us through what the fund was designed to do and how well is it working in practice? So the basic idea of the Green Climate Fund was it was supposed to be a resource transfer fund. On the one hand, developing countries need to develop and so they need to build things. They need to have more robust economies, right? And the idea was, or the problem rather, was that many of the going ways of doing that, of meeting rising energy demand, are dirty from an emissions perspective. So um, I take it the thought was, well, if we want these low-income, low-middle-income countries to shell out for more expensive ways of developing that are cleaner, then the rich countries should help them along. So a fund was established Mm -hmm. to help do this. There are obviously a lot of problems. Um, I'll select two of them. One problem is just the size of the current monetary commitments, which is just too low. There there haven't been enough dollars Mm. dedicated to the process. Dr. Mariama Williams at the South Center says that the target of how much money developed nations were supposed to kick in was itself too low. And the amount of money that's actually been kicked into the program is an order of magnitude smaller than even the target, right? So it's pennies on pennies relative to the amount of money that should be going towards this kind of project. And if that's not enough, the form in which the money has come has also been less than reassuring. So things like loan financing, things that are private sector intensive rather than, say, cash grants. So just more unconditional transfers of money and or other resources. So I think you put those problems together and you get a pretty unimpressive picture of what's going on with um, the Green Climate Fund. Um, But nevertheless, these are the kinds of transfers that we're going to have to make at scale if we're going to meet the problem of climate justice in anything like a just way. 
You're writing a book about climate reparations. And for those who might not be familiar, what do reparations have to do with climate change? And what should that process look like? The way that I think about reparations is relating to the story that we've been kind of talking around as far as colonialism. So in one sense, colonialism, the domination of one group by another group, that's not new in human history. That's something that's happened in a lot of parts of the world for thousands upon thousands of years. What is new in human history is climate change. And what is also new in human history is global politics. So actually, before 1492, there were just different parts of the world, but there actually wasn't a globally sized political system. And what built the globally sized political system was the conquest of more or less the entire world by European empires, starting with you know, Christopher Columbus, if we want to start there. Mm-hmm. And along the way, there was a transformation in how the world produced, affected by the British Empire, which was at the time one of the strongest empires in the world. And that's what we call capitalism. And capitalism was related to fuel when it started. Part of the reason that the British Empire was able to do this was because of the coal reserves that they had. Eventually, the primary energy source became oil rather than coal. Um, But there's always been this connection between the production system and the kind of going energy system. And all these things that we're talking about have the same history. So when I'm talking about reparations for transatlantic slavery and colonialism, I'm talking in very literal terms about you know, the moral crimes that built the world, the bad things that happened historically that are that created the global system that we have. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking about climate justice, when I'm talking about climate change, I'm also talking about something that is going to literally reshape the world. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why the connection is so unobvious is because people think the connection is like, The connection should be conceptual or something like that. There's, you know, something about what race means should Mm -hmm. like mean climate or something. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is literally we're in a situation that exists because of slavery and colonialism. And our situation tomorrow, our situation next part of the century is going to be shaped by climate change and our response to climate change. So if we want to make a better world system to respond to the bad things in the past that shaped this one, we're going to have to contend with the thing that's explaining what tomorrow's world is going to look like. And that's just facts about what built the world. It's not, you know, symbolism about what a spiritual reckoning with the past is. It's a very sober analysis of like what in fact built this global system up until now, and what's going to rebuild it over the next century.
in talking about the nuances of the Green Climate Fund, you got me thinking about some of your work on how the 2008 financial crisis drove large land acquisitions and how that ripple effect intersected with climate change. Can you talk about how those things intersected with each other? Yeah, that, that that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought it up, right? So as you said, the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008 had these major consequences. So there were major financial institutions that were on the brink of collapse and the world's monetary system, it seemed, was on the ropes. One of the things that happened was a large influx of capital into the global south. You saw the effects of this in South Asia. We saw the effects of this um, in Latin America. But I don't think we saw the effects anywhere as hard as the African continent. Something like um, a landmass the size of Zimbabwe, which represents a quarter of the available arable land on the African continent, was acquired in this period of world history. And what this means is that the land use implications of a lot of decisions that we have to make at the climate policy level are going to powerfully shape things like I mentioned before, things like food security Mm -hmm. for the most vulnerable people who have contributed the least to global emissions. So for just one example, in the carbon removal space, um, there's a lot of people thinking about different approaches to carbon removal. Sometimes the distinction people make is natural solutions like afforestation um, with technological solutions like direct air capture. Um, But politically speaking, a better split might be something like land use intensive strategies versus non-land use intensive strategies. So land use intensive strategies, uh, there was a study in Nature recently, like afforestation, which is a so-called natural form of carbon removal, and BECS, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, uh, which is taken on the technological end. Mm -hmm. Um, Those take up a lot of land. They have a large footprint in that sense. If those were rolled out, it was estimated that food prices in... Africa might spike five times over. Wow. You know, those are genocidal conditions, essentially. Like there are people who won't eat. Yeah. There's already famine at the current price levels affecting people in the tens of millions on the continent as things stand. So magnify food prices by five and see how much worse it is. Those are the things that aren't currently a part of the conversation about natural versus technological carbon removal, much less the much broader conversation about climate policy that really need to be if we're going to get the justice part right. Another way that these transnational climate change policies are playing out is through climate-driven migrations, which are already underway and even driven in part by land grabs and displacement. So thinking about how nations are already responding to these migrations In what ways are border policies just another manifestation of climate colonialism? Yeah, thanks a lot for that question. I think it's something we really need to think about, um, especially those of us who are on team justice, for for lack of a better term. Um, Because, you know, one of the things that is most chilling and concerning to me in the current political environment is that I think 
you know, the global right has an answer to the fact that climate crisis does not respect borders, and it is border militarization. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to effectively launder that position, which I think is an eco-apartheid position that is anticipating further cross-border migration as the century wages on, which is part of why entities like the Department of Homeland Security are pouring so much money and personnel into border policing. It's not in response to current levels of immigration. I I believe it is institutional scaffolding for eco-apartheid in you know, the coming years and the remainder of the century. You know, it's, it's important, as you said, that we recognize that this aspect of eco-apartheid is present tense politics. There are climate refugees in the concentration camps on the United States' southern border as we speak, right? Mm-hmm. Migratory flows from Guatemala have already been linked to climate-related environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. But I think the scale at which we can expect that kind of displacement, especially if we continue to fail to get our act together with climate crisis, is just going to increase over the next few decades. You know, ProPublica and the New York Times put out an explainer on this called The Great Climate Migration, which I highly um, suggest everyone checks out. Um, But that's, that's the politics that the people who are against migration and who don't seem to care about these people are promoting. And I think we also need to get in front of this issue, right? We need a much more liberalized migration policy. Uh, We need better climate policy so that people don't find their homes unlivable in the first place. We need a return to resettlement policy rather than warehousing, which seems to be the order of the day in places like the U.S. and Australia and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And all that's going to take political effort and all that's going to take political will and all that's going to take, you know, responding to timelines and timescales that are longer than four years or two years um, as our kind of, you know, in the U.S. at least, Mm -hmm. as our electoral landscape kind of trains us to do. A common refrain in the climate movement is, we're all in this together. And given what we know about how marginalized communities will bear the brunt of the impacts of climate change, do you think that this is a fair or useful framework? Does it unite us as a global community or does it erase the differences in who contributes most to the problem versus who feels the impacts the most? I think that we're all in this together is the right attitude. But I think a lot of people are treating we're all in this together as the starting point of the conversation, so using it as a way to exclude certain kinds of Mm. ways of thinking about climate politics and priorities about climate politics, when the better way to think about it, in my opinion, is as the kind of aspirational end of the conversation we're having about climate politics. So everyone's got something at stake, but we don't have the same things at stake And so if we want a climate solution that's going to work for everyone, that's going to be accountable to everyone, um, we have to have not just the fact that we're all in danger at stake, but the very important political differences and the kinds of danger that we face 
and in our levels of accountability and responsibility for the problem in the first place. So, so we're all in, the, in this together is where we would need to get to, and we would get there by supporting approaches to politics and um, slates of policy that respond appropriately to those differences. When I read your piece in The Conversation, one of the things that really impacted me was that policies like the Green New Deal are in fact compatible with a just climate future. I got a sense of hope from that framing, that an unjust future was not already baked in. So do you have hope that we can in fact build these policies right? I do. And that hope is not a trust in any particular political figure or political party. And it's not even, you know, my estimation that the political conditions are politically favorable for the kind of politics that I want. Like, I don't think they are. I think the fossil fuel companies are on the ropes in a lot of ways, but they still have entrenched power structures and lobbying structures. And those are going to be hard to come up against, you know, global North countries and former colonizer countries are still putting their national security interests first, and that's not where we want things to be politically if we want just solutions. The political wins are against us. But one of the things I often think about and remind myself of is how quickly things can change. I have this weird fascination with maps, particularly colonial maps. I just look at what the divisions used to be in Africa. Mm -hmm. Before the Second World War, the British Empire controlled a quarter of the land area on the Earth's surface and a quarter of its population. In my father's lifetime, my dad was born a colonial subject of the British Empire. And then during his childhood, there was independence and there is a much different map of the African continent. All of that is to say that even the most powerful parts of this global system that we have now, from the point of view of history and from the point of view of time, are more flimsy than they appear to us. And so it's not for us to think we're going to win every battle in our lifetime. No generation gets to do that. Hmm. But it's for us to think we can do enough so that the people that come after us are starting from a better position than we were. As pessimistic as I ever get about the current state of colonial justice, I don't have to look at an African map that is organized by whether the French, Portuguese, or British Empire owns that particular part of the land. That's not the whole ball game, but it's not nothing either. We should try to look at our children, our grandchildren, our students, their students, their students' students. We should try to look at the next generation and think, what are we going to say to them? What can we give them that we didn't have? And the answer is never nothing. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Schell. Joe Stormer creates our transcripts, and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. 
You can find a transcript of this episode, listen to previous episodes, and find links to subscribe via the podcast platform of your choice on our website, warmregardspodcast.com. Also, something that really helps more people learn about our show is if you could leave a quick review or rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can reach us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. This season of Warm Regards is made possible by our patrons on Patreon, like Glenn Schleier. Their donations help pay our great team members, Justin, Joe, and Catherine, for all their hard work. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash warmregards. There's also a link to the page in our show notes and website. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head.